0: Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Scott Bullock talks about the Kilo decision 10 years later. Paul Mahoney compares the New Deal and Dodd-Frank. Michael Tanner reminds us of our crippling national debt. And Trevor Thrall and Eric Gopner evaluate millennials' opinions on foreign policy. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As we prepare for Constitution Day here at the Cato Institute, we're going to take a little bit of time to talk about some cases that uh, maybe didn't get the attention they really deserved uh, as uh, most folks were focused on the Obamacare case and uh, the gay marriage case before the U.S. Supreme Court. And to talk about some of those cases that uh, uh, we hope will get their due, Walter Olson, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute who also runs Overlawyered.com which provides regular updates on various legal news uh, throughout the country and the world. And Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute and managing editor of the Cato Institute Supreme Court Review, which, as we record here today, uh, is rapidly being assembled by sweat-covered scholars across the United States. And we'll have that uh, in uh, in time for Constitution Day for your reading pleasure. So just to get started here, let's talk about a case that, uh, Walter, before we started recording, you said was— a little more fun than some of the other cases we're going to talk about today and that's Equal Employment Opportunity Commission v. Abercrombie & Fitch stores. So what was that case about?
1: It arose because a young woman wanted to be an Abercrombie sales clerk and she also wanted to wear a modest headscarf. Now Abercrombie & Fitch is not a business that has built its business model around modesty in women, uh, kind of the reverse. and she did not match their desire to Abercrombie look, and she was sent away. The question was, was that religious discrimination? Uh, should they have known, even though she didn't tell them, that her modesty wa- arose from her uh, being a sincere believer in the Muslim faith? And it wound up being resolved on a narrow issue, which is, Uh, Do you have to give religious accommodation when you suspect, but they haven't come out and told you what the religion is? That doesn't come up very often. Uh, What it did allow was first the the court had a chance to break 8-1 in the liberal direction, which it doesn't usually get to do on employment issues or religious issues. Uh, The sole dissenter was Clarence Thomas, who possibly because he's a little more philosophically rigorous, possibly because he had been the longest serving head of the EEOC himself, he said, rather than just wa- waving these things through the gate, let's stop and look at uh, some of the directions that uh, discrimination law is headed. Very interesting dissent, but not one that even the conservatives on the court had the time for.
0: All right. So uh, moving on, uh, this is a, a, a case that, uh, that you have worked on, Trevor, which is Walker v. Texas Division Sons of Confederate Veterans Incorporated. And this is about speech and uh, the government – issuing speech or not issuing that speech in the form of uh,
2: vanity license plates. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because it comes out – it came out right before the Confederate flag controversy – Sort of came up in South Carolina after the after the church shooting, but and this was about the Confederate flag being put on license plates in Texas. And Texas has an incredibly broad, wide open vanity license plate kind of situation. But these are more of a not not necessarily what the numbers are, but the design of the plate around it. And you can get one that says Dr Pepper, and you can get one that says the University of Oklahoma, which you know might be heresy by itself. You can get one that says Come and Take It with a, a gun of some three hundred and fifty. Uh, license plates. License plates are issued and so that the Sons of Confederate Veterans designed their own little license plate and put a Confederate flag on it and said we'd like to have this one and it goes to a board. And the board has the mission. It says that they can deny a license plate based on the theory that, quote, any member of the public might be offended, which seems quite broad. We filed a brief in the case saying that that's way too broad of mission for government to regulate speech. What actually happened in the case in a sort of interesting opinion, which really kind of makes no sense, is that Justice Breyer said that it was government speech and not private speech and therefore the same rules don't have to apply. In in his response to this and his dissent, Justice Alito – probably the most powerful part of it was – just, he, he actually put into the Supreme Court reporter a bunch of pictures of these license plates and asked the the asked the reader to say, look at these and tell me if you think that this means that the state of Texas is officially endorsing the University of Oklahoma football team or they're officially endorsing, I'd rather be golfing as, a, as the proper. No one would believe that this is the official endorsement of Texas. So therefore, in his dissent, he said they should have had to obey First Amendment principles. But they kind of avoided that question by being like, it's a government speech, so they don't even have to deal with it so they weren't allowed to have their license plate
0: and and the, one of the issues here of course is that you get to choose your license plate mm-hmm. uh it's uh it's up to you whether you want the boring regular license plate or one of these many uh, hundreds of messages. Yeah, how, s- how relevant signal- was that?
2: It, it wasn't terribly what well, because they, they had this board that was a, you couldn't, it was just a question of what license plate could you choose? I which, see. which one? And so, you could promote one. You could be like, I would like to have one that just says, I want rather eat a hamburger or something like that and whether or not the board would approve it. But yet to say that was Texas's speech was pushing a little bit further and of course it comes up with abortion it'll be used in further cases but now we kind of know that in many situations the license plate is is government speech so therefore they have far more control over than they did previously
0: all right so uh, another case uh, texas department of housing and community affairs v the inclusive communities project incorporated so uh walter in this case we have something that many people didn't want to get here and (laughs) fought mightily to prevent it from getting to the Supreme Court.
1: This is the case on disparate impact in housing discrimination. And listeners may remember that disparate impact in an area like employment discrimination is uh, you haven't intended to discriminate against anyone in hiring or in uh, treating your employees. But uh, some practice that you have screens out more of one race or sex than another. And so you are challenged and you can only keep that practice if you can point to a uh, legitimate or even necessary business justification for it. Now, the court had never addressed whether or not this also applied in the housing context, which uh, applies to everything like practice that realtors might have in how to advertise properties, uh, banks might have in deciding who to lend to, uh, local governments might have in deciding how to zone, whether to zone for apartments or single-family houses. So there were a lot of practical consequences for this. And three times, the principal uh, came up in cases. The first two times, the liberal side uh, managed to moot the cases because they were so afraid of losing to a 5-4 conservative majority. I guess those fears were misplaced because when the Texas case finally went up, uh, Justice Kennedy swung right over
2: and joined the liberals who won. This is a—it's an interesting case because... These disparate impact claims, which are very difficult to defend against, not just in Fair Housing Act but at many – a variety of different things, they kind of end up being – a shakedown operation for the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice has taken in on filing these disparate impact claims against housing authorities or even banks for lending practices somewhere in the vicinity of $600 million. And just for that, those claims, total for these disparate impact claims, these ones you hear about, J.P. Morgan, $13 billion. And one question that is not being asked sufficiently right now is where that money is going because it is a a fund that the DOJ is pulling in because you can't really defend against these lawsuits.
1: Not only have they raised enormous amounts of money uh, on the theory that there was too much subprime lending going on to poor and minority communities, but they are also going after local governments on uh, grounds such as uh, you have not passed an ordinance. Uh, telling landlords that they have to take second, Section 8 tenants and uh, not passing that ordinance has disparate impact. I know it's, it seems upside down, but it gives the federal government a lot of power in part because no one actually knows what they have to do to comply with in this. In the Texas case itself, you had two factions on where to put uh, subsidized low-income housing. Uh, and the faction that wanted to put it in existing poor neighborhoods had its arguments, which is the land can be acquired more cheaply so you can build more of the housing, and also people are more likely to be near their families. The faction that wanted to build it in affluent neighborhoods had their good arguments, saying you'll have better school systems, you'll have a better chance of getting good employment, uh, uh, even if the transportation is not as good. Both sides had a potential disparate impact claim in opposite directions. So watch for 20 years of litigation as they try to figure out how to sort this out.
0: So one of the problems in the U identify is that essentially a federal agency is able to in some cases call the shots for local governments when it comes to what ordinances they're passing.
1: They are not only able to hold this over local governments sometimes for purposes I might approve of other times to make them pass the laws I think are bad. No one wants to take the risk of litigating against the federal government and finding out five
0: years later whether they owe a ton of money. All right. uh, Moving on here, Horn v. Department of Agriculture. I love this case. A lot of people love this case. And it's in part the reason that I like it so much is because you have uh, a gentleman by the name of Marvin Horn, who arguably went against his own economic interest in pursuing and continuing to pursue and continuing to pursue uh, this case, losing repeatedly. Bef- against uh the California against California's raisin cartel mm-hmm. and it won handily uh, at the US Supreme Court. So what was this case about?
2: Yeah, both times he went to the Supreme Court, those are the places he won, but he won he lost most of the lower cases, but he was fighting against the raisin administrative committee which is a new deal era a statute that authorized the creation of what are basically agricultural cartels to try and keep the price of agricultural goods up and if listeners know anything about US agricultural policy it's it's quite crazy and it's a residual of the new deal and we do a lot of things to try and keep prices up the raisin administrative committee does it in a kind of ex post way where they let you grow raisins and then they see if there's too many and then they just we're allowed to just take them and then not give you anything. So he said this is a taking. He spent 13 years on this, and you're right. This is a, a heroic act of civil disobedience. At some point, he was almost obliged to do because he owed so much money that if he stopped, he was, he was just going to go out of business anyway. But uh, too many times, the way that these things keep going is because no one really has an interest in fighting it. The, it hurts consumers, but only fractions of a cent. Uh, most of the producers benefit from it, so very few people fight for it. So the Raids Administrative Committee now, after Mr. Horn wins this this case, that which he won and said, that uh, they they have to give him compensation when they take his raisins. It doesn't kill the raisin administrative committee, but it uh, it takes away this special power they have, which is held by, uh, as far as I can tell, seven other uh, marketing order cartels of agricultural goods, like uh, goods like the Spearmint Oil Cartel. So we're coming after you next, Spearmint Oil Cartel, Walter.
1: This was a Takings case, and it hinged in part on the physical taking of raisins. I love that a phrase like that can turn out to be so legally important. The physical taking of raisins uh, was part of what uh, made this a big Takings win because uh, it wasn't just the conservative or libertarian justices; you also got a bunch of liberals. And this also is a pattern well worth watching because. The one Takings case that almost everyone remembers is the Kelo case, which went the wrong way from a libertarian standpoint. But the enormous public debate and the broadening realization that Takings is something that endangers uh, liberal values as well as property values, uh, endangers the little guy in so many cases, has meant that there has been a series of cases in which the liberal justices, not always all of them, but uh, some of them uh, have uh, seen the merit in... Uh, strong compensation rules for takings. There was an uh, Arkansas water flooding case a year or two ago in which I believe it was unanimous, uh, written by Ginsburg, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And I always keep my eye on the cases where uh, people are crossing against their ideological stereotype because often that's a sign that the law is changing.
0: Now, uh, reading SCOTUS Blogs coverage of the case, it says that this was a five-four
2: opinion, but that's not actually true. Is it was. Uh, it was eight one that it was a taking. It was five four about what they needed to do to figure out compensation. And, and but that eight one is the the important. That's part. the significant one.
1: The other one was a genuinely close case, and it was the eight one that I think uh, deserves the headline.
0: So where does that go? where does that go from here? Because oh, it's I, done. Uh, in, in, well, but in addition to the taking on the other various cartels, do we have a clearer? or a more broad understanding of what uh, may constitute a taking down the road?
2: Well, as Walter said, that the takings uh, jurisprudence has evolved a lot in the last 10 years. And most of the cases that we've done on takings, we've won and had a fair amount of liberal support on many of them. Uh, redefining what that a taking can occur through an administrative committee uh, is important. But like I said, there aren't that many agricultural good committees that actually have the power that the raised Administrative Committee has.
1: Several of the cases in the taking series uh, have had a strong procedural component. And of course, Horn itself had come up earlier uh, on one of its procedural aspects. And it wasn't as surprising to win the liberals on those procedural ones because basically they're giving people more handles to litigate uh, arbitrary government action. Uh, That's potentially significant in a case that Cato is urging the the court to consider for next year involving a Nevada church whose land holdings were... Uh, harmed by a, a water diversion. And uh, there it's a squarely procedural one, which is before even getting to the question of whether they're owed money, the law has made it impossible to navigate the maze of different uh, motions and uh, qu- courts that you have to go to. So again, one that could potentially appeal to the courts of liberals.
0: Now, uh, this ca- next case, Johnson v. United States, is it takes a little bit to unpack, but we're talking about essentially a Compelling federal courts to examine state-level statutes to find out whether or not some felony constitutes uh, conduct that places people in physical jeopardy, mm-hmm. and it, it, so unpack that as best you can because this was a this is an important case because it deals with a, a very important rights, and uh, it was a a clear eight to one. Uh, decision by the court.
2: Well, yeah, it was, but it, had, it sort of splintered. So this is the Armed Career Criminal Act. And uh, since 2007, this was the fifth time that the court had taken up the question of what does it mean in the Armed Career Criminal Act, which is a, a sentence augmentation act. It's a, it's a three strikes law. The question was: Was that you could get a higher sentence uh, if you had three violent felonies in your past, which could be robberies, could be arsons? They were defined, and then there was another clause called the residual clause, which was conduct that presents a serious potential risk of harm to another.
0: And, and so they had they had these various questions that had been placed them bef- placed before them before, like drunk driving yep. was drunk driving drun- from the police fleeing from the police.
2: Yeah, whether or not these were, were satisfied by this, and this is a really good example of the power of dissents and also the power of Scalia's dissents, which of course are very notorious for, and for many reasons. But sometimes his dissents, actually more so than, than really any justice I can name, help change the court's flow. So he began saying a few cases ago, he was like, well, this is the third time we've had this in four years. This means that this is unconstitutionally vague. Uh, he has a joke in one of his opinions says, well, we try to have one of these cases in every second or third uh, United States reporter because he's just like, this is becoming ridiculous. So he started dissenting being like, I don't even – I'm done with trying to figure out what this means. It's time to declare that unconstitutionally vague. And so what happened in this case was that this was about whether or not merely the ownership of a sawed-off shotgun – Which was, is legal in many states. Exactly. Was the type of conduct that presents a serious potential risk for harm to another. And so first it was argued in November. and For the fifth time, the court sat down and, and were talking about this. And then what they did, which is really interesting, is they ordered the case to be re-argued on the question of whether or not the entire thing was unconstitutional. So the first time it was, it was, is a sawed-off shotgun a, a conduct that presents serious harm to another? And then they just by itself, the court said, okay, they must have been talking about it, and they're like, okay, we're done. Now we're going to ro- order a reargument about whether or not the entire residual clause of the Armed Career Criminal Act is unconstitutional. So they re-argued the case in April about the bigger question. And that's where the court struck it down, 8-1 for the result. Uh, It's a little bit less clear about that in terms of – the result was this man himself would not be convicted or not be – his sentence would not be augmented under the Armed Career Criminal Act. But the residual clause is now struck down as unconstitutionally vague, as a violation of due process because no one actually was under any notice of what sort of conduct it prohibited.
0: Now, uh, void for vagueness, that idea goes back for – to the 20s. Is that right?
2: Oh, it goes back a long time. I mean it's it's sort of an – essential element of criminal law going back to due process concerns that you have to have some notice of what you're not allowed to do.
1: Ironically, it's also one issue on which Clarence Thomas... Stands apart from the usual libertarian consensus, and he believes that there isn't good enough historical grounding for it, mm-hmm. which I believe is why he dissented.
2: It. Yeah, he compared it to substantive due process, which is an interesting dissent. But uh, the question of if courts had been chewing on this for so long and it hadn't been able to produce any sort of meaningful, uh, meaningful guidance, then it was just time to take it away. Or a, a series of tests that mm-hmm. they Some could subject yeah, the law to. So, uh, does
0: does this change anything in terms of of, a, of this? void for vagueness issue
2: um, it does and uh, we'll see what's happening this is sort of an overcriminalization case it's nice to have some of these laws uh, struck down to some degree when they are too vague to make any sense. But we'll see what happens going forward. It's actually very unclear how many retroactive uh, people this applies to. That's a really difficult test to apply. Could be thousands. Yeah, could you get out of jail if you were in jail because of the conviction under this? It's, there's a lot of stuff going forward but and there are other vague criminal statutes and we'll have to see how it, how it's applied going forward.
1: As Trevor said, there are a lot of other vague uh, criminal statutes and the, the court has not always been sympathetic to arguments There. they are – uh, should be void for vagueness. Uh, certainly in the criminalization of business conduct, white collar crime, uh, mail fraud and wire fraud, uh, RICO, uh, there have been a lot of cases in which one hoped that they would look closely at void for vagueness doctrines and, and one was sometimes disappointed. Trevor
2: Burrus And maybe this was just the unique time, one off where after five times in less than a decade, it was just time to get rid of it. All right. So we're going to discuss one more case
0: and then we'll talk about another one that the court uh, will be dealing with in its next term and this is Yates v. United States. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's, <laughs> it's funny. It's the, funny case.
1: The, the destruction of tangible objects; those objects being fish. The Dodd-Frank financial reform law forbids the destruction of financial records or tangible objects which are related to the keeping of business records. And clearly, that indicates wiping clear a hard drive is because you don't want the government to see your emails. Clearly, it includes burning your ledgers because you don't want the government auditors to read them, but doesn't include throwing fish overboard because you know that if they get to inspect the fish, they will catch you in violation. And Mr. Yates was convicted, I believe, on this and said, look, folks, fish are not financial records. And although, admittedly, you got me if you read the tangible objects language broadly, uh, in the world we live in, unless you are constructing an abacus in which fish represent the beads, no one uses fish as financial records. Please read it more narrowly and mercifully in line with the people's likely understanding of a financial uh, and accounting law. And that argument carried the day.
2: I think it's an, an interesting case, too, because it represents this kind of behavior by U.S. attorneys' offices. In the In the background of the case, he had been fishing and a A deputy, a deputized Fish and Wildlife Service guy, goes onto his uh, boat, is is measuring grouper to see if they're if they're above the limit, which was 20 inches, and he finds a few of many. He puts them into a cooler. He says, "I'll meet you back on the docks, and I'll write you your civil violation." In the course of this, he's, he he dumps the fish over, and uh, and someone later testified that's what happened. He denies it, and then he measures. He puts new fish in there and he measures those again. He's like, "Ooh, they're all up up to size." What happened? And so he was kind of mad. And then and then two years later, they came back to charge him with destruction of financial records quote unquote uh, and that that's the thing that's i mean by the behavior of us attorneys who were just oh man he really skirted us he really denied our authority we were going to write him a civil violation but now we're going to throw the book at him under sarbanes-oxley because we can read this statute to say anything and that case does have the my favorite uh, humorous line of a of an opinion in justice lana kagan's dissent where she says well look i read the word tangible object as including a fish and she and there's a line where she says Uh, A fish is a tangible object. And then she cites Dr. Seuss, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Uh, It's her citation, probably the first time that Dr. Seuss has been cited in a Supreme Court opinion.
0: All right. So coming up uh, in the next term, we have uh, an important case dealing with whether or not a public school teacher can be compelled to support some of the activities of a public sector labor union. So what well, I guess, what are the stakes? What's, what is the case about first?
2: This is a magnificently important case, and I'm very glad it's been taken. It's, it's sort of, again, there's a movement over the last uh, few terms of the Supreme Court to roll back the kind of things that public sector unions are allowed to take from their employees. So we had a case called Knox v. SEIU a few terms ago, wherein public sector employees were told they had to give notice to their non-members about using their dues for political fees. Now, what is the entire context here? Well, going back to the 70s. The Supreme Court said that the public sector unions can take money from non-members, people who aren't a member of the union, Uh, for the purposes only of core collective bargaining agency fees is what they're called. But they can't take money from non-members for the purpose of political advocacy because that would be the functional equivalent of forcing them to support political speech that they may not agree with. So so after that, unions had to divide up – public sector unions had to divide up the the money they were taking from their non-members into this is what we're using for political speech. This is what we're using for support of the union. You have to pay support of the union but not the political speech. That's been going forward in a very sort of uh, spirited concurrence slash dissent in the original case, which was called a bood, Justice Powell said, are you kidding me? Everything that public sector unions do is political. You're saying that they have to make a division here. But teachers unions, if they don't get it through political speech – they're going to get it through collective bargaining. They decide about class sizes. They decide about how much overtime they're going to have to do. They decide how many how many subjects they're going to teach, how many qualifications. All these things are education policy, that they're using the money from non-members to support their actions. And now we have now squarely put before the court the question of whether or not that distinction should be overruled. And we are likely to win that case based on the 5-4, the based on – I'm not going to go too high, but we're likely to win it, which will basically make – right to work could make right to work a constitutional right for public sector employee?
1: Let me introduce a little more uncertainty than Trevor is as to who will win. The reason being that because it's so big, uh, it is going to get the kind of build-up that Citizens United did, except it's going to get more of the build-up before the ruling rather than after the ruling. And uh, we by this time next year, or or shortly before the end of the term. uh, It it will have been hammered home that uh, the Supreme Court will be considered illegitimate if it rules against the public unions, and that all hell potentially will break loose. They will see this as a destabilizing element in politics, even as they read Citizens United as a destabilizing element. I'm not confident that the paper trail of what justices have written in calmer cases, where there was not that amount of agitation in the streets, will carry over, given what we know about both Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy's... uh, Proclivities to... Well, uh, just to to stop with Chief Justice Roberts, uh, he does not like to overturn institutional apple carts that are in motion, uh, even for good and logical reasons. Uh, That's at least my reading of his rulings
0: on Obamacare, is that uh, he thinks that there would be chaos. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you. Walter Olson, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and Trevor Burris, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. Please join us in September for Constitution Day. That should be held in mid-September. And, uh, of course, follow all of these important uh, legislative, judicial, and public policy issues at our website, cato.org. The Supreme Court's Kilo decision allowed governments to take private property solely for the purpose of economic development. The backlash sparked reform at the state level, and its impact is still felt today. Scott Bullock represented Suzette Kilo and others before the U.S. Supreme Court. He spoke on the 10th anniversary of that decision at the Cato Institute in June.
3: Suzette Kelo, the named plaintiff in the case... She had just bought her home about a year before the takings commenced in New London. It was the first piece of property she had ever owned in her entire life. That place was incredibly important for her. It was something where she was really going to start a new chapter in her life and she poured her love and her labor into that property. She wasn't there, but for about a year, she got a knock on the door. Uh, telling her that the new London Development Corporation was was interested in purchasing her home for a new development project, and if she did not sell, it would be taken through Eminent Domain. Right up the street from her was a woman by the name of Wilhelmina Derry, who was in her 80s, who was born in the home on East Street in Fort Trumbull in 1918, had never lived anywhere else. Her family was right next door, to her and she wanted to live out her remaining days in this home. Somebody who had a very deep attachment to the property uh, as contrasted to Suzette, who was a newcomer, but both of them valued home ownership and property ownership to such an incredible degree. And that is recognized in the Constitution's protection for private property rights in numerous provisions of it. The takings clause just simply does not say, nor shall private property be taken without just compensation. It could just be that if the government wants to take your property, they pay you for it. But there's an added level of protection that was at the heart of the Kelo case, is that it can only be taken for a public use because of how important uh, property ownership is to people like uh, Suzette Kelo, Wilhelmina Derry, and to so many others uh, throughout throughout the country, you know one of the things that happened when we got involved in in the Kilo case is that many critics claimed that the only real reason why uh, there was so much controversy about this was because i j had this incredible public relations machine, and that we steamrolled the city of New London in getting the word out, and only if the public would have known all the great benefits that would have, uh, would have flowed from this project, it would have been a different story. Well, obviously, uh, we make no secret about our ability to uh, talk about our cases, to get the word out about uh, our cases, but I just simply think that that is not true. People saw this case as an injustice, Uh, and they did so for a couple of reasons. One is that they looked at Suzette Kilo's little pink house and said, that's the house I grew up in, or that's the house I would like to own someday. That's the house that my family members live in. It really, this case hit home in a way that very few, literally, that very few constitutional decisions uh, really, uh, really do. The other rap that people said uh, against the case is that, well, what's the big difference between uh, taking a home for a new private development project or taking a home for a road or a reservoir or or some other type of traditional public use? Well, there's a huge de- uh, degree of difference between the two, and I think people instantly got that. It's one thing, yes, it can be difficult uh, to give up your home for a public works project, but for a government to tell you that we are going to take your home or your business and we're going to hand it over to another private party, essentially somebody who's just like you, except that they happen to have more money than you do. And we think that these new owners will provide more tax revenue and benefit the community more than what you are doing. That is deeply offensive to a vast majority of individuals and I think it's one of the reasons why people were so shocked when the court upheld these types of takings to take property as what was at the heart of the Kelo case from one private owner and hand it over to another private party in the hope that that new private party would put the, the, the property to higher and better use. The Constitution says that private property shall only be taken for public use, not private use, and yet that is what the court signed off on in this case. Uh, Kelo also today remains a very uh, powerful teaching tool. I've heard over and over again from law students that have come into our programs uh, that it is talked about in law school It is one that resonates deeply uh, with um, students and with members of the public, and it provides such a great launching point for discussions about some of the very fundamental notions of our Constitution. Uh, It is something that uh, folks um, really want to talk about. It raises issues of the limits on government power uh, and uh, the proper role of um, urban planning, the rights of the individual versus versus the community.
0: As millennials take greater prominence in the political landscape, how will their opinions on war and peace be shaped by the events in their lives? In the new Cato paper, Millennials and U.S. Foreign Policy, Trevor Thrall and Eric Gopner attempt to understand how this rising generation will act with respect to foreign policy. Here are segments from both of their speeches from June at the Cato Institute. First,
4: Trevor Thrall. Let's imagine that it's 2045 and we're a fly on the wall in the Oval Office. The virulently anti-American Islamist controlled Libyan government has been not so secretly pursuing nuclear weapons for many years. Uh, And US intelligence has just discovered uh, evidence that the Libyans may get their first nuclear weapon within about six months. Um, After long promising that Libya would never achieve a nuclear capability, the president has gathered her top security advisors in the Oval Office to discuss a full-scale military intervention um, to destroy Libya's nuclear infrastructure and topple the government. After a few minutes of listening to the conversation, the president's national security advisor jumps to her feet and says, if we invade Libya, It's going to be just like, how does she finish that sentence? How do the others in the room respond to that sentence? Before you answer, let me tell you a little bit more about who's in the room. President Ellen Johnson, 62, born in 1983. National Security Advisor Natalie Burns, 60, born in 1985. Vice President Tom Conrad, 57. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Bill Rogers, 59. I'll spare you the math, these are all millennials. Right? Um, the president was 18 when 9-11 occurred. She was 20 when the United States invaded Iraq in 2003. All of the principals in the room were in what sociologists call the critical period, uh, the time when young adults are at their most impressionable and most likely to form lifelong attitudes about the world. Of course, we can't really know what else is going to happen between now and 2045 to help the security advisor finish that sentence. But from what we know about how people form their views, we can be pretty darn sure that the events and the historical context at the turn of the millennium, when these folks were in their critical period, are going to have a lot to do with the end of that sentence. And more broadly, as the millennial generation grows and becomes a larger percentage of the adult population um, and takes over leadership positions, they're going to have a bigger influence on elections and certainly on US foreign policy. So it's not too early, I don't think, to get a start on figuring out what these folks think and how that might affect how they act. Uh, Let's start with just a few basics. So we're all on the same page about who these folks are. Um, As Chris said, uh, these are the folks born between roughly 1980 and 97. Different folks and organizations will put the years of start and stop differently. There's always arguing about that. For our purpose, it doesn't matter at all. Um, Regardless of whose numbers you use, they're now the biggest generation, having just earlier this year overtaken the baby boomers as largest chunk of the population. They are also now the biggest chunk of the adult workforce, having just recently overcome uh, Gen X in that regard. Um, So they're big and they're beautiful and they're here to stay. Uh, The second thing, and this has gotten a lot of press, um, they're the most liberal generation. And this kind of continues a trend that uh, from previous generations, each being a little bit more liberal uh, than the preceding generation. Um, There's also been a lot made of the fact that they've been less excited about Obama since the first uh, election, uh, and that's certainly true, but most of the research, as far as we can tell right now, suggests that they are likely to stay more liberal than all other generations throughout their lifetime. Part of this may be due to the fact that it's also the most diverse American generation. Uh, Just 57% of the millennial generation is white, sort of Euro-American, and 11% of them are the children of immigrants. Uh, compared to 7% of Gen Xers and 5% of baby boomers. So it's a diverse and liberal generation. Uh, No surprise to any of you. They're also, of course, the most technologically savvy and connected generation. Uh, Not only more likely to post a selfie on Facebook or whatnot, which I'll do later, um, but, uh, but they're also the first generation in American history to actually Use technology to identify what makes them different from preceding generations. They actually, if you ask them, what makes you guys different, they actually mention technology. The internet is, is kind of their thing. Amazing. Uh, and this leads to something that's very important for someone who studies the way people think uh, and reason about foreign affairs, and that is that they're the uh, least likely generation to get their news from, you know, newspapers or television mainstream news. They're the most likely generation to get their news from the internet. About 50% 50 of them get their uh, primary news from the web uh, or their phone or what have you. Um, And I'm pretty sure just based on informal surveys of my students over the last few years that many of them have never seen a hard copy of a newspaper at all, period.
0: Now, Eric Gopner.
5: The data suggests that Millennials view the world in much less threatening terms uh, than their elders do. They were asked a series of questions on nine different potential threats facing the United States, and in almost all of those threat instances, non-millennials perceived in higher numbers that threat to be critical as opposed to their millennial counterparts. There is one exception. In the case of global warming, millennials tend to see that in higher numbers as a critical threat facing the United States uh, than their elders do. And when we look at the total overall numbers, you'll notice the nine different threats and eight of them. 40% or more of non-millennials would say, yes, this is a critical threat facing the United States of America, but only in four of those nines would millennials agree at a 40% or higher level. And so we're led to ask the question of why would millennials perceive a less threatening world uh, than their elders? And we think the Cold War has a significant role in impacting that. Uh, They have no history of the Cold War. They did not grow up at a time when there was a singular, unifying, existential threat to superpowers, nuclear-armed, facing toe-to-toe for nearly half a century. That's not the world that they grew up in. Instead, they came of age after the Soviet Union had collapsed. They came of age at a time in what we'll call the Cold War dissensus, where the singular threat was gone, all the threats had fragmented, and a lot of those threats were, in fact, ill-defined. Still leaves a really cool question, though, which is why would millennials view specifically terrorism less threatening than their elders do? Why don't they see terrorism as more of a threat than their elders since it was their critical event for many of them coming of age at a time when the attacks of 9-11 occurred. And we would offer two thoughts on that. The first is something to do with age. The youngest millennials were only four years old when the attacks occurred. And so we think maybe the millennial generation can be divided into two age groups as it relates to the impact of 9-11. Those who were emotionally mature enough to have been impacted by the event and those who simply experienced it but were too aloof because of their chronological age to really understand what was going on. We also think that it may have something to do with an entanglement between how 9-11 impacted them individually, but then how they feel about the United States' response to 9-11, specifically the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we think in that entanglement, there's a conflation of their thinking. And we think it's perhaps developed a degree of ambiguity in the minds of millennials in terms of how they view a number of different things to include use of force, terrorism, and the event of 9-11 itself. So in 2011, Pew did three great questions that I think helped to highlight the ambiguity that might be in the minds of many millennials. The first question was, do you think the United States might have done anything that, in part, may have motivated the attacks of 9-11? In the notice of each of the four generations, only a majority of millennials agreed with that statement and said, yes, I do think the United States may have done something to, in part, provoke those attacks. And then exactly as we would expect in terms of what Trevor was talking about with the critical period, when they said, did it change life in America in a major way, millennials were the most likely to say, yes, it has changed life in America in a major way. And that's exactly what we'd expect. But then here comes a third question that's a little bit potentially confusing. Did it affect you personally a great deal emotionally? And millennials are sort of off the charts in the negative direction. You have other, all the other three generations at an 80% plus saying, yes, I was personally impacted emotionally a great deal. And then a 25% drop in terms of millennials feeling that same sentiment. So we think this gets at the potential ambiguity going on in the minds of many millennials. Now we think the ambiguity may have been caused in part by their assessment of the war in Iraq. So for 15 years, they've heard really optimistic assessments from their presidents. Uh, From 2003, thumbs up, mission accomplished, the United States and her allies have have, uh, prevailed. Fast forward to 2011, President Obama hailing the stable and self-reliant government of Iraq and praising the United States for its extraordinary achievement in the country of Iraq. And then we come to today, 2015, approximately one-third of Iraq is controlled by the Islamic state. More than 200,000 people have lost their lives in that fight. And there is this, what we think, a growing credibility gap between what the millennials are hearing from their elected leaders and what's actually taking place on the ground.
0: Our growing national debt has dropped out of the headlines recently, but that doesn't mean the problem has gone away. The official national debt recently topped $18 trillion and is projected to approach $27 trillion within 10 years. Worse, if you include the unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicare, our real indebtedness exceeds $90 trillion. In his new book, Going for Broke, Cato senior fellow Michael Tanner lays out much-needed solutions for real reform. He spoke in June.
6: Uh, Our
7: debt, current debt is just over 100% of GDP, uh, which means that we actually owe more than all the goods and services produced in this country over the course of a year. In many ways, it's as if your credit card debt was larger than your entire annual take-home pay pre-tax. You probably have a problem at that point. Uh, if you want to put it in context, you know we hear a great deal about the crisis in Greece and how bad uh, things were. I'm just back from Italy, and they're talking about their debt problems. And the U.S. is probably sort of middling uh, when it comes to that. We're, there's places that are worse than us, uh, so-called pigs, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, and Greece. Uh, but there's places that we expect would be as bad, you know, worse than us that aren't. Uh, we're actually slightly worse off than France when it comes to national debt. And we sort of think of the French as the model of profligacy when it comes to spending. But the but uh, we're actually slightly worse off than they are, worse off than Britain, uh, worse off than the average of the EU when it it comes to debt. So certainly we have a substantial amount of debt overhang in this this country. But as bad as that is, and what I suggest in the book, is that doesn't even begin to tell the actual story of how bad our debt is. Because there's actually several different types of debt when you begin to look at debt held by the government. Uh, And the first of these is simply debt held by the public, uh, which is the debt that's issued in terms of government bonds and so on. And uh, you know, you actually, if you have a 401k that has go- government bonds in it or whatever, you have a portion of this debt. And institutions all over the country have owned part of this debt. About 40% of this debt is held by, uh, by foreign countries, about 9%. The two largest uh, countries are Japan and China, each hold about 9% of this debt. Uh, this, but this is, this is the debt that's actually out there issued in terms of government bonds and so on. And most economists consider this the most serious type of debt for a lot of reasons. We have to pay interest on it. We have to pay it back at some point. Uh, it is potential for crowding out uh, uh, private borrowing and so on. So people really worry about this this type of debt. Uh, it runs right now to about $13 trillion, just a little bit more than that, uh, which, is, which is fairly substantial and is, and is headed upwards. Uh, but there's other types of debt as well. Uh, there's debt, intergovernmental debt, which is debt that the government owes to other parts of the government uh, with the various trust funds and revolving accounts. most famous of these, of course, is the Social Security Trust Fund, which holds about $2.9 trillion in government debt. There's a Medicare Trust Fund, the Highway Trust Fund, and so on. There's over 100, actually, of these trust funds. There's a Gulf Oil Spill Trust, Trust Fund and so on. There's all these little trust funds hidden throughout the government. And the government actually owes about $5 trillion to these various trust funds. Uh, now, you hear you know, a lot about how these, these bonds are inviolable, and the government's never made a you know, late payment on them, and so on, and all of which is true. But it does mean that when this money comes due, they eventually have to come up with the money to pay it back. I mean, just to give you an example, the uh, Social Security system ran about a $60 billion deficit last year. it spent about $60 billion on benefits more than it takes in, uh, not counting interest payments, which are made in the form of debt. But uh, but in order to pay that, they actually have to redeem some of these bonds. And, come up, and that means the government has to find $60 billion with which to redeem the bonds, with which to pay the benefits. So eventually, the government's going to have to come up with all that debt. And if you add that together, you get about $18 trillion, a little over $18 trillion, which is the current national debt. And when the media and economists and others talk about the national debt, that's generally what they're talking about, is the combination of that intergovernmental debt and the and the debt held by the public, which is, a, is about 18.2 trillion uh, as of this morning. There's also a third type of debt, though, that we should be aware of, and that's the implicit debt, or the unfunded obligations of the uh, government going forward, and particularly for a couple of programs like Social Security and Medicare, uh, which have legal obligations in terms of the benefits that have to be paid in the future. Now, we can estimate what those obligations are gonna be. We can look out into the future And we can estimate how many people are going to be retired in a given year. And we know what the law says that those people have to get in terms of benefits. So we can figure out roughly what we're going to have to pay those people. And we can also estimate roughly how much money is going to come into those systems through the various payroll taxes or other programs, other taxes that fund those programs. Because we know how many people are going to be working, what they roughly will be earning, and and how much the tax rate is going to be on those. And we can find the two. And there's a gap between what we've promised in payments and what we ultimately are going to bring in in revenue in order to, to pay those payments. There's a gap. And that gap, depending on exactly how you want to measure it, particularly dealing with future healthcare costs, runs around $70 trillion, or potentially as much as $90 trillion. Uh, you add all that up and you get a real indebtedness somewhere in the $90 to $120 trillion range. At least five times and perhaps as much as nine times of GDP. And I should point out that these numbers are in terms of uh, discounted present value. So what it means is if you actually had that money today, socked it away in a bank and earned about a 3% interest rate, you'd be able to pay all those future benefits that are going forward. Now, some people would say, well, these implicit obligations, this implicit debt, it's not real debt in the sense that it's not a government bond, there's not a legal obligation that way to, to pay it, but there is under current law. The current law says you have to pay those Social Security benefits. Unless you change the law, unless we reform systems like program like Medicare or Social Security to change what the current law is, we will eventually have to pay that and those will eventually move up to either intergovernmental debt or or debt held by the public. They'll simply move up the chart there and become a different more solid type of debt as we move forward because the government's eventually got to make those payments. If you actually want to look at that in context, and you look at the in the unfunded obligations in addition to the on book, the $18 trillion debt, plus those additional $72 trillion or so in, in debt, what you actually get here is that the US, well, we're still not number one, we're still not as bad as Greece. Uh, we're actually a little bit worse, uh, better off than France because they have a large pension obligation in their debt, large unfunded obligations in their pension system as well. But that's it. We're actually worse off in some ways than Portugal or uh, Italy or Spain or the countries you hear about in crisis in Europe. Uh, that's a significantly bad economic situation. Now, we do hold some advantages over these. We're a considerably larger economy than they are. Uh, we're still the, the world reserve currency. Uh, you know, it, it might be a low bar, but we're still the best bad bet out there, which means that uh, you know, other countries are still willing to lend us money at absurdly low interest rates. Uh, you know, if you're somebody looking for where you're going to stick your money, the euro doesn't look like such a good deal right now. Nobody's buying rubles and uh, the Rumimbi is not exactly the best investment out there. So, so people buy, put in dollars and they, they invest in the United States, which allows our interest rates to stay low. But if interest rates don't stay as low as they currently are, if they go back to anything approaching historic levels, you can expect all these obligations, all this debt to shoot up substantially.
0: The recent financial crisis led to sweeping reforms that inspired countless references to the New Deal. Comparable to the New Deal in both scope and scale, the massive Dodd-Frank Act also shared with New Deal reforms the assumption that the cause of the crisis was misbehavior by securities market participants. With wasting a crisis, Paul Mahoney shows that this narrative is formulated by political actors hoping to deflect blame from prior policy errors. He spoke at the Cato Institute in May.
6: So most major securities reforms in the United States, and indeed elsewhere, share two important characteristics. They're typically adopted in the aftermath of a stock market crash. And they're also publicly justified by what I, in in, uh, the book, call a market failure narrative, which contains three key claims. First, that misbehavior by uh, securities issuers, traders, or financial intermediaries caused the crash second, that a lack of regulation permitted the misbehavior, and third, that the reforms will prevent a repetition of the problem. The key claims in my book are that these narratives are usually wrong, and the resulting reforms typically curtail competition within the most directly affected segments of the regulated industry, with modest offsetting benefits to investors. Accordingly, Congress and regulators in the future should avoid the temptation to overhaul financial regulation in the immediate aftermath of a crisis. I try to illustrate these points with multiple examples, starting with the first significant securities regulatory statute in England, uh, enacted in 1697 after the 1696 run on the Bank of England, and ending with Dodd-Frank. But most of my examples uh, are drawn from the New Deal securities reforms, and I'm going to uh, ask your indulgence as I talk about a few of those today. And I chose these largely because they are widely seen as canonical examples of good regulation. Generations of law, business, economics, history, and political science students have learned that the New Deal reforms uh, saved capitalism from itself by introducing greater transparency and fairness into previously anarchic securities markets. As I argue at length in the book and will try to show briefly today, this lesson is largely wrong. Lax regulation was not a significant cause of the 1929 market crash or the Great Depression. The reforms themselves were at best a mixed blessing for investors. They included a few useful improvements to existing legal rules but these were accompanied by more radical changes that harmed investors by reducing competition among investment banks, securities exchanges, and investment managers. The market failure narrative of the New Deal securities reforms includes two fundamental claims, one about disclosure and one about market manipulation. As a former SEC chair once put it, Uh, Investors supposedly bought new issues without seeing a prospectus and traded on the secondary markets without the benefit of ongoing disclosures. The Securities Act of 1933, the first of the New Deal reforms, introduced the notion of full disclosure to the securities markets. This is simply incorrect. Indeed, the irony of the disclosure provisions of the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 is that they largely duplicated existing disclosure practices for New York stock exchange companies, a point to which I'll return momentarily. The Securities Act brought about very little change in pre-existing disclosure practices. In fact, if a Martian Uh, were to come here and read the Securities Act as enacted, uh, he would quickly and correctly conclude that it is a secrecy statute. It suppressed information about the company and the offering, except during specified windows and through specified media. The gun-jumping provision and the requirement for a waiting period, generally seen by securities lawyers as as just uh, parts of the technical details, uh, are both anti-disclosure. So why are they there? The solution to the puzzle is to understand how much investment banking practices changed during the 1920s. In prior practice, underwriting was divided into a distinct wholesale and then a retail phase. The leading investment banks, uh, organizations such as JP Morgan and & Co and Kuhn Loeb & Co, were exclusively wholesalers. They, brought, they bought newly issued securities from companies and distributed them through retail broker-dealers. And the managing underwriter exercised tight control to prevent competition among these retail broker-dealers, restricting where, to whom, and at what prices they could sell. The underwriting process was slow, deliberate, and tightly controlled by the managing underwriter. During the 1920s, new entrants, such as the National City Company, competed for business by offering more rapid distribution. They encouraged broker-dealers to fight for business by discounting prices and poaching other brokers' customers. They also created their own retail distribution networks to help them sell even more rapidly. The result was dramatic. The new entrants took business away from the leading wholesale houses, and by 1928, They dominated the underwriting business at the expense of the traditional uh, leading firms. The Securities Act reversed this upheaval by slowing down the offering process and reestablishing the managing underwriter's firm control over it. The ban on sales prior to effectiveness of a registration statement ensured that brokers could not take orders until the managing underwriter gave them the okay. The gun-jumping provision assured that retail broker-dealers were as much in the dark as their customers until the managing underwriter was ready for them to begin the selling effort. The separation between the wholesale and retail phases of an offering, which had largely disappeared in the 1920s, became a statutory mandate. The statute accordingly revived the fortunes of the old investment banking aristocracy who promptly regained their old positions on the top of the league tables uh, and drove many less established firms out of the market. By my calculation, the Securities Act increased concentration in the underwriting business, defined as the aggregate market share of the top five underwriters, uh, by 12%, controlling for the differing market conditions before, during, and after the Depression. Now let me turn to market manipulation. Although modern securities lawyers tend to emphasize the periodic disclosure system for publicly traded companies as the heart of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, President Roosevelt and his congressional allies saw the statute as a means to end market manipulation. A key conclusion from the PCORA hearings, which lasted for over two years and generated a great deal of publicity, was that manipulation was rampant on the New York Stock Exchange. The evidence of manipulation was the existence of so-called stock pools. These were temporary joint ventures among two or more financial intermediaries or investors to trade in a particular stock. Congress concluded that the pools were today what we would call pump and dump schemes uh, that bought heavily in order to create price momentum and attract unsophisticated investors whereupon the pool would sell out and the price would collapse. And if this all sounds like ancient history, by the way, um, it's quite frequent for modern commentators to refer to these stock pools when talking about current uh, regulations uh, regarding market manipulation. Why did PCORA, the Senate Banking Committee's counsel, and the senators on the committee conclude that pools were engaged in manipulation? largely because they found that the stocks in which the pools traded often increased in price. And of course, when the market crashed, they all fell in price along with uh, all the rest of the uh, stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. But no one ever asked the essential question, how did the pool stocks perform relative to the rest of the market? Uh, And as far as I can tell, I am the first person to examine that question. Uh, And the answer is interesting. The pool stocks outperformed the market over both the short and the long run. In other words, there was no pump-and-dump cycle. All the evidence points to the conclusion that pool operators did exactly what they said they were doing, which was finding undervalued stocks and buying them. Take my favorite example, Radio Corporation of America, which was purchased by several pool operators. Later writers, drawing on the Senate's investigation, called these purchases spectacular manipulations. And indeed, uh, from the end of 1926 to the spring of 1929, RCA's stock more than quadrupled in price. Yet, as the Senate's report takes pains to point out, RCA did not pay a single dividend during that period, nor did it acquire any new uh, physical uh, uh assets or uh, real estate. In the Senate's view, only manipulation could account for this dramatic price rise. So did anything happen at RCA during 1927 and 1928 that might offer uh, uh, a uh, uh, an alternative explanation? Well, it created a new national broadcasting network called NBC and began to deliver original content to millions of homes, generating advertising revenue and boosting sales of its radio sets. It acquired movie production and distribution businesses and began making talking motion pictures through its newly RKO Studios uh, subsidiary, which would go on to produce many of the iconic films of the 1930s. It experimented with an exciting new technology that could send pictures by wireless transmission setting the stage for the development of television during the next decade. RCA had as good a run in 1927 and 1928 as any technology company has ever had. But this was all invisible to, the, to Pecora and the Senate because they believed that only physical properties were sources of value. So Congress's claim that the lack of regulation led to rampant market manipulation turns out to be demonstrably false. It also claimed that a lack of disclosure regulation meant that exchange-traded companies disclosed inadequate information, and what they did disclose was often misleading. This is a more diffuse claim, uh, but but it is uh, susceptible to indirect testing. Here's the idea. Imagine that Company A has very good disclosure practices. This means that traders will be well-informed and that dispersion in their estimates of the company's value will be low. Company B, by contrast, has poor disclosure practices. Traders will not be as well informed about it, and so they will vary more widely in their estimates of the company's value. Now imagine that the market learns new information directly relevant to the value of each of the two companies. We would expect traders to react more to the news about Company B than about Company A because there was less previously known about Company B. To state it more precisely, if the same amount of information is released about each company, we would expect there to be more post-release trading in Company B's stock and for there to be a larger post-release price movement in Company B's stock. We can use this insight to ask whether company disclosure practices improved after enactment of the Securities Exchange Act. Companies traded on the New York Stock Exchange became subject to the Exchange Act's periodic disclosure system in mid-1935. So we can compare the market's reaction to earnings releases in early 1935, releases that came before the implementation of the Exchange Act, to earnings releases by the same companies in early 1936, which came after implementation of the Exchange Act. Earnings releases, by the way, were common then as they are today. They're press releases in which the company gives basic information about net earnings and earnings per share. The hypothesis then is that prior to the 1935 announcements, traders were in the dark because there was no Exchange Act periodic disclosure system but by the time of the 1936 announcements, traders were well informed because of the implementation of that system. If that hypothesis is correct, we should observe larger price and volume um, reactions to 1935 earnings announcements than the 36 announcements. But in fact, both the price and the volume reactions are strikingly similar uh, in both years, suggesting that the background information available about companies did not improve after enactment of the Exchange Act. So I would interpret the disclosure provisions of the Exchange Act quite differently from the way that they are typically described. I believe they were a best practices mandate that forced the smaller regional exchanges to bring their disclosure practices up to the standards of the New York Stock Exchange. This, of course, they could not do. It was not cost-effective for these small exchanges trading in the shares of small companies to invest in as much self-regulatory infrastructure as the New York Stock Exchange. And so the result was entirely predictable. At the time of the enactment of the Exchange Act, there were 41 stock exchanges in the United States. None of them had shut down during the Great Depression. But within two years after enactment of the Exchange Act, a quarter of them had disappeared. Once again, regulation adopted in the immediate aftermath of a financial crisis, drove small firms out of the market, increased industry concentration, and gave investors fewer choices. Well, let's leave the New Deal and turn to more recent stock market downturns and their associated regulatory reforms. Today's reformers have a much harder job to do than the new dealers because it is no longer very easy to say that U.S. financial markets are lightly regulated. But as we will see, regulatory proponents are remarkably good at finding remote corners into which the regulatory light has not yet penetrated and declaring that the causes of stock market crashes can be found there. Following the dot-com crash of 2001-2002 and the Enron bankruptcy, Congress enacted the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. The market failure narrative declared that the paucity of federal regulation of auditing practices and corporate governance facilitated Enron's collapse. But it can't both be true that bad corporate governance caused Enron's failure and that the Sarbanes-Oxley Act is a recipe for, presenting, uh, for preventing future Enrons. Sarbanes-Oxley's corporate governance provisions codify a laundry list of what were, in 2002, considered corporate best practices, of which Enron itself was a faithful follower. That brings us to Dodd-Frank. Here again, proponents were faced with the extreme challenge of arguing that the failure of commercial and investment banks, which are among the most heavily regulated entities on the planet was a consequence of lax regulation. They met the challenge by arguing that the crisis was caused by limited federal oversight of the the over-the-counter derivatives market and the shadow banking system. The proponents, by and large, ignored the potential contributions of government policies to the subprime crisis. From 2002 to 2006, the federal funds rate was lower than it would have been had the Fed followed the Taylor Rule. Federal housing prices encouraged mortgage originators to extend credit to households that would not have obtained credit under more traditional underwriting standards. To my mind, however, the biggest policy failure was that regulators and economic policymakers failed to see an enormous concentration of risk in the too-big-to-fail banks. Many commentators have noted the moral hazard created by an implicit government guarantee of the solvency of the too-big-to-fail banks. But the way in which that guarantee interacted with financial engineering in the form of securitization derivatives transactions uh, has perhaps not gotten sufficient attention. In theory, any financial innovation that reduces the cost of transferring risk should move risks to those parties best able to bear them, leading to a dispersion of risk within the financial markets and the economy. But unfortunately, this is not true when there are institutions that are known to be backed by an implicit government guarantee. Apart from regulation, what limits risk-taking by financial firms? Well, it is well understood that diversified shareholders may be willing to take extreme risks in return for the possibility of extreme rewards. But creditors see the world differently. They don't share in the upside. And so creditors, have a a real incentive to stop firms from taking on excessive risk. And short-term creditors have an important tool at their disposal to do that. They can simply refuse to roll over their credits uh, as they mature. But this mechanism uh, operates less powerfully, if at all, in a too-big-to-fail bank. If a catastrophic loss on investments wipes out the value of its assets, the creditors are protected by the implicit government guarantee. So the too-big-to-fail banks will take on risks that smaller banks would avoid. At first approximation, this is what happened in the run-up to the subprime crisis. Too-big-to-fail financial institutions were willing to hold large and highly leveraged positions in mortgage-related assets. So I would argue that the market failure narrative has it backwards. Securitization, derivatives, and shadow banks did not create excessive risk, Instead, they allowed too-big-to-fail banks to take maximum advantage of their implicit government guarantee. The guarantee, not the financial innovation, was the root of the problem. Uh, But as is always true, the regulatory response gives certain financial firms a way to raise their rivals' costs. In the case of Dodd-Frank, banking regulators gained the authority to bring the shadow banks, which is to say all financial firms that are not already, already regulated as banks, under the supervision of bank regulators who seem inclined to use that authority. A possible and dangerous outcome would be that institutions that serve different purposes than banks and that have different liquidity needs than banks, such as insurance companies and asset managers, will be regulated as if they are banks. Uh, And unfortunately, if subjected to bank-like regulation in order to economize on regulatory costs, uh, they may uh, be acquired by bank holding companies. As we know, during the financial crisis, we took a step in the direction of European style universal banking as the largest investment banks converted to bank holding companies and are now regulated as such. If regulation of insurance, asset management, and other forms of financial intermediation raises their costs to the point where they cannot operate um, on a standalone basis, they will also migrate under the bank holding company umbrella. Once again, we see that what is from the public's perspective an unintended consequence of regulation is from the perspective of the leading firms in the regulated industry a hoped-for consequence.
0: We've made it even easier to listen to Cato Audio anytime, anywhere with our new app available as a free download for iPhones and iPads at the iTunes Store. The app, named simply enough Cato Audio, not only includes the monthly Cato Audio recordings but also Cato's daily podcast, Cato's event podcasts, Free Thoughts, and more. Download the free app today. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.